So good to see you. So good to be with you. I know Paris this week was disconcerting for everyone. And I just want to say, say a word before I go on with our passage, just that, uh, you know, it's sobering. It's, it's disconcerting. But, but I think of Psalm 46. Do you know Psalm 46? Psalm 46 is a great psalm to read in times like these. They just remind us that though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, God is God. And the God of Jacob is our refuge. And we are uh, undeterred and, and really unsurprised. Now, as grievous as the war on terrorism is, uh, it, it's a, I hope it's just a call for us to, to, to grow stronger in prayer of, of a, a world and a nation and, and nations that desperately need it and that we more than ever would be the church. And like Christ, full of grace and truth, the perfect balance. Um, Let's uh, all the more than ever uh, lead out in prayer for revival in our country. Certainly France needs it around the world, the Middle East. If you'd stand with me, I want to read from our passage today. Uh, By the way, uh, thinking again about uh, France, uh, this night that we're studying, this Thursday night, remember one of the things that Jesus says recorded not in Luke but in John, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. He's coming again. This is not heaven, but he is coming again. Okay, church, we're in Luke 22. Luke 22, succinct, packed passage. One word group is going to occur five times in about seven or eight verses. Uh, It's going to really give us the clue to what this passage is about. Beginning in verse 39... And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, can you imagine that night in Jerusalem, narrow streets, upper room? Jesus has spent this final evening before the cross the next day with his closest disciples. He has washed their feet. He has poured out his heart. He has taught them that uh, there's going to be some great tribulations. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In light of the war and terrorism, hear those words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust 
in God. Trust also in me. And he has celebrated this final Passover meal with them and turned it into the first communion meal. Because all of those Passovers looked forward to the Lamb of God, and he was here on the planet, and tomorrow morning he would die and bear the world's sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that's happened. They probably spent several hours there. And then Jesus leads them out, leads them out of that upper room, down the stairs, into the narrow cobblestone streets of Jerusalem, out the a gate probably to the north, probably the Lion's Gate, maybe to the east, the eastern gate, and then down the steep bank of the Kidron Valley, which is right there by the Temple Mount, right by the old city. Down the steep bank, and then he's going to move his way up the quite steep banks, the, the, the hillsides of Mount Zion, where he is going to return. Now, they wouldn't have gone for a few hundred yards from the bottom of the Kidron Valley up towards the top, which is a long steep hill, but a few hundred yards in, there's this thick olive grove. It's still there today. One of the trees, the scientists believe, is at least 2,000 years old, so it had been there when Jesus was there. It is one of the most meaningful things when you go to Israel to go into that garden and pray there where Jesus prayed, where the agony of Gethsemane took place. And going up the, the steep bank of, of Mount Zion, they would have pulled to the side after a few hundred yards and, and pulled into the, the Garden of Gethsemane, these thick olive trees, where Jesus often went with his disciples. And there is this momentous event. There we read in verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said to them, the 11 that are with him, Judas is gone, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray. Okay, we are at the moment of crisis. He is about to be arrested, betrayed. He'll spend all night, trials, beaten, beating, insults, mockings. Uh, next morning, early next morning, he will be nailed to a cross and bear our sin. I mean, this is the climactic event, the most important single event in world history, they're just a few hours before it, and he calls his disciples, pray. This is what we're going to do now. We're going to pray. Pray that God would protect you and deliver you from trouble and temptation. Now, Jesus is also praying for them, for them because earlier in verse 31 that we saw last week, he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, to, to, to eat you up that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall. So Jesus is praying, and he is telling them they also need to be praying. Pray that God would protect you and deliver you from temptation because uh, the hour is grave. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Church, think about this with me if you would. If I was with Jesus in the flesh, I mean, if he was here now for a few days, and I was in a crisis moment, and he was standing right there by me, I don't know that I would have to pray because I think, Jesus, I don't know if I have to pray to the Father who is in heaven and I cannot see. You are right here with me. Whatever you say, I'll do. And I can face any foe if you are right here with me. And you would sort of think that, okay, if he's there, maybe they don't have to pray. But no, no. Oh, no. This is always, always the way of the people of God. It is the way he has lived his life uh, all of his days on earth as not only fully God but fully man. He has prayed, 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 continually talking with the Father, the greatest privilege.
the greatest power. He's always been our Father. And at this moment of crisis, nothing changes. Pray. You disciples, because this is what God uses. You need wisdom. You need courage. You need insight. You need protection. You need a wall of fire around you for protection. Then pray, because God has ordained pray as the way to, to meet the needs of his people. Pray. And then after calling his disciples to pray, he goes over and prays by himself because the next verse says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Now, some of you could throw the stone for a long, long way, probably not that far, but, you know, 50, 60, 70 yards maybe. He goes to the other side probably of the garden, a thick olive tree garden, to get along with the Father because he is just overwhelmed at this time. We're going to see more about that. He goes a stone's throw away and kneels down and prays. Now, that's interesting that Luke points out that he knelt down and prayed because that's not the normal posture for prayer at that time. It would have been to stand, probably extend his arms and look up to heaven. That would have been the normal way. But there are times in which the emotion, the burden is so great, you've got to hit your knees. And, and he hits his knees over there in the garden. You can imagine it, can't you? And what does he pray? Father, let this cup pass from me. If it, if it would please you, let this cup pass from me. Remove it from me. What is Jesus praying? What's he asking for? What exactly is he asking the Father for? To remove this cup from me. What's he asking for? Well, he's asking that there would be, is there some other way that we could take care of the world's sin other than me going to that cross? Lord, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Is there some other way? Now, it's, it's just so fascinating because his entire life has been headed towards the trajectory of a cross. Every lamb in the Old Testament that was sacrificed was pointing toward the cross of the Lamb of God. Every Passover lamb all throughout history, every animal in the, in the temple, all the Old Testament was pointing to this event. And he says, oh God, is there some other way? Lord, if so, let there be some other way. Is there some other way to pay for the world's sin and to redeem these precious people that we love? And he is calling out to the You know, um, it's no big deal if, if, if some of my prayers don't get answered the way I want to because that's a good thing. You know, I'd have married the wrong woman for one thing, but a lot of other things have been mistakes. It's sort of like... You know, if I'm with my three-year-old granddaughter, now four-year-old granddaughter, and, you know, if she got anything she wanted, it wouldn't be good. And I gave her one thing of candy yesterday as I was babysitting, but her parents aren't here, and, and she's won some more. And, um, you know, it's a good thing that, that we say no. But, but the gap between Evie's three-year-old brain and my 61-year-old brain is just, you know, it's nothing compared to the gap between your brain and God's brain. So good thing that God sometime in his sovereign mercy says no. But are you not surprised that Jesus asked a prayer and God said no? That surprises me. I thought with you, Jesus, you know, the perfect, infinite Son of God become flesh, that all of his prayers would be answered yes, but no, no. He's fully human. And he is teaching us how to pray. Pray whatever your heart's desire is. Whatever is on your heart, ask God. Ask the Father. Bring it to God. Ask it. And that's what he's doing. He's asking, Lord, is there some other way? Um, if God would have answered this prayer, yes, you and I would be in a heap of trouble because we would be in our sin forever. 
and Satan would have won the battle. But oh God, thank you that you in your grace and mercy said no. Okay, so Lord, remove this cup from me. Was the cup the physical excruciating pain of crucifixion? Excruciating, that comes from the same root word crucify. Uh, is that what was on his heart? The idea that, that pretty soon he's going to be beaten to a pulp and his disciples would abandon him and he would be nailed to a cross and, and it's the most horrific execution way ever. Is that what's in his mind? I love what John Stott says, one of my favorite writers. He says, I would never believe that. <laughs> Nothing could cause me to believe that. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. He, he, he reminds us of Socrates, who when he was uh, dying and committing suicide, he's got that uh, cup of poison, uh, the testimony was that he went cheerfully and without any change of color or expression. And when his uh, disciples around him began to weep and cry at, at, at this, he said, that's absurd. And apparently Socrates uh, joyfully drank the poison. Now, you mean Socrates could, could uh, joyfully uh, 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 die like that and Jesus is, is, is uh, you know, just, you know, horrified by the thought? Maybe they've got different cups to drink. There's different poison to drink, and, and much more than the physical pain. Or uh, you think about Jesus' followers. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, if you are persecuted, rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And the disciples were like that. Peter and uh, Paul and Silas were beaten to a pulp in Acts 16, and they were rejoicing that they're worthy of suffering for the name. And that's how the early martyrs suffered in Rome. Ignatius, about early 100, early uh, the top first of the second century, um, you know, he was headed to Rome and he said, you know, don't be praying that I'd be, that I'd be deprived of this honor of dying for Jesus Christ. Or Polycarp, in the middle of the second century, now by the way, Polycarp, the bishop of uh, uh, Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir in Turkey, the bishop of Smyrna, he was discipled by John the Baptist. So he knew the man who knew Jesus and he was discipled by him. And Polycarp was arrested by the Roman Empire as an 86-year-old man and taken to be executed. And he said, you know, uh, he did it with joy. You know, he's counted worthy to, 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 to die for Jesus. Or the first British martyr was in the third century, uh, and, and, and he, he had the same attitude, you know, of joy. Uh, joyful he goes. And, and we even see that today. We've seen it down through the history. Not every martyr, but we see it today. That one of the Egyptian believers who were beheaded on the coast of Egypt, you know, not that long ago, just, you know, with joy, with peace. We see that. So was Jesus, unlike his disciples, shrinking back from the physical pain of the crucifixion? No way. That wasn't it at all. When Jesus says to the Father, remove this cup from me, he's not talking about the physical pain. He's talking about the spiritual pain of, of bearing the, the wrath of God against the evil and sin of mankind. And uh, in the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor of the cup of the wrath, the holy judgment of God, of a good God against evil and sin. Yes, God is good, and so he judges evil and sin. And, and that would be poured upon Jesus. 
And that's the cup of, su- of suffering that he was talking about. He would bear our sin. Think about it if you would. The, the sin in your life in which you felt the worst about. You remember how bad you felt? Or can you get some idea, remembrance? Yes, you can. What if all of your sins at once were put on you? And they were brought to your mind and conscience all at once. It would be overwhelming. You know, we just couldn't handle it. But for Jesus, all of your sins and your sins and your sins and all of our sins and multiplied times a few billion was placed on Jesus. Not someone who's sinful like us, but the holy, spotless Lamb of God. That is the pain that he endured to pay for our sin. And it was just almost more than he could bear. And he would be separated for the first time in all eternity from this close, intimate relationship with the Father. Closer than we can imagine. I have noticed as a pastor in the last 30, 35 years that some of the greatest suffering that anybody goes through is when an elderly couple who have been married and deeply in love for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, when one of them dies, what it does to the other spouse. They've been so close. And it's just, it rips their heart out. And that's just a little glimpse. Now Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, have been in an unblemished love relationship for all eternity. Not 70 years, all eternity. And tomorrow morning, All of your sin will be placed on Jesus. And what will he cry out? He'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cup of suffering. And when you think about that as the cup of suffering, far greater than the physical pain of crucifixion, it magnifies the love of Jesus in bearing your sin. Because when he hung on that cross, he didn't just bear bear sin in general. He died for your sin and my sin. And the, the greatness of the wrath of God against sin and the, and the depth of the wickedness of God just highlight the love of Jesus on that cross. And friends, that is the love you have been looking for all your life. Not the love of a, of a marriage partner. Not the love of romance. Not the love of your mother and of your father. Those are all good things. But that is not the love that you've been looking for all your life because all of those loves will let you down. But not the love of Christ, which will never, ever let you down. And you are made for it as an eternal creature. Let me go, church, don't believe those ads you see on the table that you need this thing and that thing to be happy. Oh, no, those are nice things. But you need the love of Jesus. Wide open heart and live in it and love him back. This is the love of Jesus. Lord, if, it, if you be willing, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Is there some other way? Is there some other way? But then he says, he goes on, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, if that's not what you want, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, Lord, this is what I want, but nevertheless, whatever you want. Church, Jesus is teaching you and me how to pray. Honest, completely honest, whatever you want, 
whatever is the desire of your heart, ask God. Ask God. Bring it to the Father. But you don't pray demanding. You pray as a servant. But nevertheless, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. That's how to pray. Now, so often our prayers, you know, we kind of think of God as like a genie in a bottle, and we just kind of order him around. Oh, no, he's not a genie in a bottle. He is the sovereign, all-wise, all-good, holy, almighty God. We don't order him around for nothing. We ask. We, we come with a, with a heart of humility. Lord, this is what I want. I'm asking you for this, but nevertheless, not what I want but you. Lord God, I'd love to be married tomorrow. I'd love to have a great marriage this year, but Lord, not what I want, but what you want, what's best. Lord, I'd love to be healed of this cancer, but if it glorifies you more that, that you take me home to heaven, then Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Church, we pray whatever's on our heart, but the attitude of a servant, Jesus is, pre- is teaching you and me how to pray as a humble servant. Lord, whatever you want. Nevertheless, Lord, whatever you want. So, Jesus, uh, he, he, he's, he's knelt down and he's prayed. And he's, um, later in verse 44, we're going to read, he's in agony, anguish. Mark's gospel says he's deeply distressed. Uh, Matthew and Mark say that he, he will say to his disciples, um, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm hurting so badly, I feel like dying. I mean, incredibly honest, vulnerable prayer. Church, he's teaching us how to pray. At this great moment of crisis, he's teaching us, this is how you face crises. Whether or not they be bombings in Paris and worldwide terrorism or cancer in their own family. This is how you face crises. This is how you face any problem. You pray. You pray. And you pray whatever's on your heart. You pray with great honesty. But you pray with submission to God because he's God and he's good and he knows best and we trust him. So he knelt down, he prays, he's praying this prayer. And there appeared, verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now, what was that like? I mean, you're there praying. Did the disciples see it? I don't think so. I think they were over there sleeping. But, but I mean, did, did an angel just physically appear? What we see throughout the Bible, there are angels, and at times they appear, and it scares people to death when it happens, usually. They have to say, first off, don't be afraid. You know, don't worry. Uh, those little Cupid-like angels, those, they don't exist. Powerful angels. And the Bible teaches us that God at times uses angels to answer our prayers and to minister to us. I am quite confident there are unseen angels in the corners of this room and on this campus, and helped you countless ways in your life. And an angel appeared to him, sounds to me like physically appeared, strengthening him, holding him up. And then get this next part. And being in an agony. The idea of being separated from Papa. The idea of bearing the world's sin, being in an agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You, you, you might not think, but that's just surreal. Really? Did that happen? And it's a medical condition that is known, got a fancy name. Uh, apparently, uh, when there, in times of severe emotional stress, uh, a chemical is released that 
causes some blood to come out with the sweat glands. And it happens at times. And it did with Jesus. Hurting so badly. And what does it say here? It's Jesus. It's teaching us how to face problems and crises. And it's pray. How does he pray? And he prayed more earnestly. Hebrews 5, 7 says that Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to him who hears him. When's the last time you prayed with loud cries and tears? Pray earnestly. Pray with all your heart. Pray with fire in your belly. Pray and don't stop praying. Jesus is teaching us how to pray, to pray with all of our hearts. One writer said, you must pray with all of your might. It means fervent, effectual, untiring wrestling with God. Charles Spurgeon was an 1800s preacher in London, and he compared prayer to a church bell with a rope down it. And he said, prayer is like pulling on that rope. And he said, some people, you know, they pull on that rope, they go over here and grab it, and they're so languid about it. They're so, uh, you know, listless about it. You know, they're probably about to fall asleep. And he said, others uh, will grab that rope, but only occasionally. Occasionally they'll grab it, and they'll give it a good jerk, but it'll be a long time before they give it another jerk. They don't pray much. He says, when you pray, grab that rope and pull on it with all your might and let God know you're serious about this. You're earnest about it. Grab that rope and pull it up and down because you are desperate for God. Church, is that how you pray? With loud cries and tears? I'd say for me, not enough, not enough. Church, if you and I were living in Syria today or went with me to visit the Sidwells and we walked into this 1.5 million refugee camp right off the Times Square of, of Istanbul where the refugees are crowding in this broken area and we didn't know if we are going to live or die. If we lived in a place where we could get beheaded by ISIS, uh, you know, I bet there'd be some more desperate praying. I bet we would just kind of casually, you know, throw up a prayer or two every once in a while. We'd be calling out to God. If we did not know where our next meal was coming from or if there was any food out there, we'd be calling out to God. Church, we are desperate for God. Our world, our country, our community, our city is desperate for God. There are real people going to a Christless eternity, including those top five. Pray with all your heart. Put some fire in your belly. Call out to God. As the Bible says elsewhere, uh, Epaphras wrestled with God in prayer. He had heart. He had fire in his belly. So Jesus prayed more earnestly. And then 45, and when he rose from prayer, he, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. You hear it again. Time after time after time in this brief passage, pray. Pray, pray, because this is God's way to meet the needs of his people. This is God's ordained way. If you took a shoemaker back in the ancient world, the business of, of, of cobblers is to make shoes. In the same way, the business of Christians is to pray. It is our essential task and ministry to pray. Nothing higher, nothing deeper. 
than pray. Because when we, when, we, when, we, when we study and work and do what we can do, then we've done what we can do. But when we pray, we see what God can do. We access omnipotence. We express our heart to God. Now, church, let me just ask you, do you really want to live 70, 80, 90 years and get to heaven and never experience prayer this way? Do you really want to go through life with just a little bit of listless, wimpy, sleepy-eyed praying? Or do you want to be a warrior for the kingdom of God? And you're doing battle. Yeah, there's great needs in the world, but we're going to fight that battle on our knees. And we're going to rely on the omnipotent, almighty God. Maybe we in our day in the affluent Western church are not experiencing more breakthroughs, more miraculous, more uh, rescue, more revival because we're too listless in our praying. And God is calling us. When will you understand? When will you know? Church, the message of the Bible, the message of all of the gospel of Luke, the message of this passage as he faces the crisis is that whatever crisis, problem, or need you are facing, call out to God and pray. Because God, our God, is a prayer-hearing God. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that when you pray to God, that God in heaven hears your prayer? Or do you think that all of these hundreds of passages, including in the Gospels, Jesus was just fooling with us? That he wasn't serious about it? Oh, just joking. Of course not. He is a prayer Hearing God, what greater privilege could a human being have than to talk to this God? Oh, God, we're desperate. We're desperate. May we pack out our prayer service. May every day find us alone in our prayer closet. May uh, we find ourselves driving down the road, not listening to, uh, you know, sports radio, but talking to our God in heaven. May we be people who pray earnestly. Because God is a prayer-hearing God, and this is what he uses. It is our privilege. Stand with me. Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, take our prayers and light a bonfire under them. Set our hearts and souls on fire. Because, Lord God, our world needs your intervention. Our city needs your intervention. Our top five need your intervention. Our community needs your intervention. Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer. This is our prayer in Christ's name.